1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We uh, have been working through these questions that I've encountered over my time of pastoring, and I thought it'd be a good time to start correlating them and answering them because they say that in your average church, when one person has a question, you can count on 10 more thinking the same thing. And so if I get a bunch of questions of of the same nature, then they're on a lot of people's minds, and so I thought this would be helpful. We're in the fourth question in this series. And uh, the question is this, what happens when a believer dies? What happens when a believer dies? Now, our text tonight where we're going to start, this is, these messages by their design are not expository. You know I like to preach expository messages when I can, but uh, these we're going to kind of jump around and, and get some, uh, some truths from different portions of Scripture. But I want to begin with, with a a passage that is you know how sometimes you 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 quote a verse and you leave it there and you should keep going like romans 8 28 we know that all things work together for good to them that love god them are the called according to his purpose thank the lord for that keep going romans 8 29 is is right there with it for whom he didn't know for me to foreknow them he also did predestinate what to be conformed to the image of his son that gives you the why of what we're going through. Well, that's true of this verse tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. We love to go to this verse, but as it is written, and by the way, he's hearkening back to Isaiah 64, as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And we stop there, and we say, oh, we can't imagine what God has in store for his, oh, it's just more than we could ever process. Now, I will agree with you that heaven and what awaits is more than our finite mind can process. But the idea that we can have no idea of what's coming is not scriptural. You know why? Because we got the next verse. Look <laughs> at what it says. Verse number, verse number 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So when Isaiah said this 750 years prior, yeah, he couldn't imagine. But Paul's saying, hey, y'all, we got what Isaiah didn't have. We have the Spirit of God and his ever-completing word to tell us what we got coming. Now, we still can't process how wonderful it's going to be and how beautiful it's going to be, but we can start getting some glimpses and some ideas of what's coming Next, and so this question, what happens when a believer dies, it's, it's kind of an umbrella to some similar questions that we're going to focus on the experience of the believer. This message is not meant to talk about heaven and all that heaven entails. We have another question that covers most of that. I'm talking about as a believer, when my, if the rapture has not yet happened, what can I expect as I lay there prepared to cross over and what can I expect once I do? Okay, so here's some of the questions that kind of fall under this, this, this large question. Does it hurt? Now, you may not have asked that question, but you've wondered it. Does it hurt? How about this? Is there some kind of an intermediate state like limbo or purgatory or soul sleep? Here's another one. What are we doing until the rapture happens? And then... 
what do we be doing when the rapture happens? And these are all questions I think are worthwhile and a good way of spending our time. So what's the key aim of this message? It's to encourage the believer regarding what awaits us in the presence of Christ. See, we can get so focused on what we're facing here, and that's, that's a, normal, a normal response. But if we take our eyes off of what's coming, we get into trouble. But if we can keep our eyes on what's coming, it gives us the grace and the strength that we need to deal with what's, what's going on now. See. So let's pray, let's ask God's blessing, and then we'll get into it. Father, would you help us now as we, uh, as we move into this next question, this next subject, Lord, would you just speak to hearts? Thank you for the wonderful way that the songs and the choir and the uh, pianist and all of the singers and Brother Davies and, and everybody just ministered to us tonight. We thank you for that. Lord, I want to be helpful as well. I want to be effective and rightly divide your word of truth, and I pray that you help me with that. And may Christ be lifted up. Encourage us tonight and bring us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. All right, so let's start with that first one we, we went through. Does death hurt? Does death hurt? Well, the Bible frequently, and I'm going to do my best tonight not to be too anecdotal. There will be a couple here and there. I want, to, I want to stick with Scripture, but I'll give you a couple of things to kind of undergird that. But the Bible frequently uses the euphemism of sleep to describe the death of a believer. John 11, verse 11. These things said Jesus, and after he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. What was Jesus saying? He was saying Lazarus was dead. He was dead. You remember Stephen, Acts chapter 7? In fact, if you want to kind of put a little mark in Acts chapter 7, it would be helpful to you to, to do that um, because we're going to be back there. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned, they stoned Stephen, verse 59, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It doesn't mean he fell asleep. It means he died. He died. 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll come back to this later too. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are what? Asleep. He's talking about people that are dead, saints. Okay. Now, this should not lead us to the wrong teaching that is known as soul sleep, the idea that, uh, that when you die that you, you go to sleep and you're awakened at the resurrection. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay. When it talks about sleeping, this sleep is speaking of the inactivity of the body not the soul and the spirit. The body is asleep. The body is inactive. If we follow the idea of sleep, we find that it's a welcome friend that's quite pleasant. You know, when you're a, ch when you're a child, you fight it, don't you? Little kids that don't want to go to sleep and so they're cranky and they fight it. And Asher, sometimes he'll run around and he'll get especially active. Why? To keep from falling asleep. But as you get older, you stop fighting it, don't you? Yeah. As you get older, you realize that sleep is a welcome friend. You look forward to it. You kids that resent nap time, you'll get over that. I think it ought to be law in this country. Everybody gets a nap time. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Nap time. 
You see, the more mature we get, the more we look forward to it. Can I tell you something as a Christian, as we mature in our faith? I'm not saying we have a death wish, but we look forward to that transition, don't we? We look forward to being with the Lord. We look forward to heaven as we mature. So with this in mind, we've got to conclude that while circumstances leading up to the death of a saint can be unpleasant, and they can be, the actual transition is quite peaceful, quite peaceful. The point of using that euphemism that for the believer's death is like sleep, it means it's temporary and we're going to wake up again. Can I tell you, Christian, death, if you're saved, is temporary. It's temporary. Okay. Now, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're in 1 Corinthians. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The next question is, is there an immediate state, an intermediate state, rather? Is there an intermediate state? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, a tabernacle in the Bible is a tent. Um, Brother Davies and his family recently went camping. They didn't have a tent per se, they had a camper. And it's nice and, and, and reasonably comfortable, but would you want to live in it? No, no, it's, it's, it's a temporary thing. And when you go camping, you might enjoy the experience, but you understand that, that eventually that tent is meant to be taken down and we move back into our better dwelling. That's all we are, y'all. This here is a tent. And we enjoy it and we thank God for it, but we understand that eventually we're meant to pull up stakes and go home. Get into, get into a better dwelling, see. This earthly tabernacle, it's meant to be temporary and transient. Um, uh, verse 1 again, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with, clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Boy, you ever, you ever been there? You groan earnestly? Oh. Now, I'm getting to the age where I'm starting to groan for physical reasons. Things don't work like they used to. They don't feel like they used to, or they feel worse than they used to. But I think far more than that, my spirit groans to be delivered from a flesh that doesn't want to do right, a flesh that doesn't love the Lord, a flesh that says the wrong thing, that thinks the wrong thing, that acts the wrong way, that has the wrong attitude. I cannot wait to shed that part of me because I hate it. I hate it. One of the great evidences of one's salvation is not that you don't sin, it's that it bothers you when you do. I can't stand here and tell you I don't sin, but it drives me up the wall when I do. I don't want to. It's my flesh. It's my flesh. Continue reading. Verse number three. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given us unto us the earnest of the Spirit. That's a down payment. You got a down payment in the Holy Spirit that you got a house coming. Amen. Okay. Verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body... We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, watch this, 
and to be present with the Lord. Grammatically, there is no amount of time between those two clauses. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It is an instantaneous transition from the body to the Lord immediately. Okay? And so from that, Paul is clear that once a believer has died, he or she is in the presence of the Lord. And there is no intermediate state anywhere in the Bible that is mentioned. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. Anywhere you see anything like that is what's called extra-biblical sourcing. That's man-made stuff. But as far as the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's not there. It's made up. It's made up. There is nothing scriptural to conclude that there is some intermediate state and certainly not one that you need to continue working or somebody needs to pray or somebody needs to be baptized for you or somebody needs to buy an indulgence and help build a church in order for you to get sprung out of purgatory and get into heaven. That is unscriptural. See. Now go over to Acts chapter 7. We go back to the death of Stephen, one of the first deacons of the Bible. Preachers, y'all pray for me. I'm using a Bible I don't normally use, and that's always a struggle. I'm trying to turn pages that are not used to my hands. Acts chapter 7, verse number 54. The death of Stephen gives us some more things to think about. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, speaking of Stephen and his preaching. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Verse 55 gives us an interesting bit of information. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. There apparently can be a point at which we can see over before being technically dead. Now, this is where I'm going to get a little anecdotal. As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to be with a lot of saints as they crossed over. And I am telling you, I have seen more than one situation in which I was convinced that that beloved brother or sister in Christ, though their heart was still beating, though they were still uh, registering respirations, I believe they were gone. Or at the very least, they could see over. I'm talking about smiles. I'm talking about a peace that passes all understanding. I'm talking about something that was indicative of the idea that though technically they were still physically with us, their, their heart was already home. And we see this in Stephen. Stephen was still there. He was still able to speak. He was still able to, to wish that God would not lay this into their charge. And yet he had a clear view over into heaven. And what's interesting in verse number 56 And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. 
Is that significant? I believe it is. You see, according to Hebrews 10 and a host of other passages, but it's summed up in Hebrews 10 verse 12, Jesus' normal position is to be seated at God's right hand. Speaking of him in Roman in Hebrews 10 verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Amen. But when Stephen saw him, he was standing. What do we take from that? This is what I take from it. That as Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father, <clears throat> And a saint is about to come home. It is not, as much as we love the idea of seeing our loved ones, it is not our loved ones that are waiting at the far side banks of Jordan. I'm sorry, it's not Fido and Ren 1010 either. I'm not saying they're not there. We'll cover that in another message. We'll see. Can't be dogmatic about it. That was for you, Kyle. All right. It's not even the angels. Although the angels do minister to us in this setting, I believe the moment a soul crosses over, it is Christ Himself that comes to the edge. And the first hand that you touch is that hand with a hole in it. The first eyes that you see are the kind eyes of the lovely Lord Jesus. And the first breath that you take, you smell the aloe and the casey and the myrrh of the garments of the Messiah. It's him. It's him. Hmm. The Bible says in Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It means valuable, prized, and weighty. That means it matters to him. It's a big deal to him when his saints come home. So we've asked the question, does death hurt? I don't think it does. Is there an intermediate state? Absolutely not. Third question. Oh, by the way, that's where I wanted you to turn. Third question. What happens until the rapture? All right, if a loved one passes away, the rapture has not yet taken place, then what is going on? What's going on with their body? What's going on with their soul and spirit? What's going on? Where are they? What's going on? I'm going to summarize what the whole of Scripture teaches for time's sake. It appears as though, and this is the only way I know to summarize it because I don't have anything better to give you. It appears as though we are given a temporary body in which to dwell, something that is sufficient for our need to to uh, circumnavigate throughout the afterlife, okay? The Bible is not clear exactly how that's set up, but here's what we know about that temporary state. Whatever body we find ourselves in, here's what we know about it. First of all, we know that according to 2 Corinthians 5, which we just read, we exist in the presence of Christ. We are where Jesus is. We do know that. We exist in the presence of Christ. And once again, Christ is not in purgatory, nor is he in limbo. We exist in his presence. Now, there is some question about, you know, the early Old Testament saints, paradise versus heaven and all that. We're not going to get into that. There's a lot going on there, but we're not going to get into that, okay? Um, We do know this, that according to Luke 23, we are in a state of bliss. How do we know that? Because that thief that hung to the side of Jesus said, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me where? In paradise. He didn't say Detroit. He said paradise. He didn't say withful, 
He said paradise. He didn't say limbo or purgatory. He said paradise. That sounds pretty good to me. Here's what else I know. In that body pre-rapture, we are recognizable. Go all the way back to 1 Samuel 28. Saul can't get a hold of God anymore. And so he does what he thinks is the next best thing. He tries to call up Samuel. He finds a witch, a medium at Endor. And this, this woman apparently is a con artist because when Samuel does show up, she's scared to death. She's used to dealing with her, her, her spirits, her demons. But all of a sudden, a man comes up who is recognizable as Samuel. As Samuel. And so we know from there that they're recognizable. I'll tell you where else we know that from. Um, we're not just recognizable, we're also active. We're not just floating around, we're active. Do you remember when we talked about uh, Matthew 17 and then the Gospel of Mark, we talked about the transfiguration? You have two men, Moses and Elijah, that appear with Jesus, and they're active. They're having a conversation. So what do we know about this, this, this place, this, this, this state until the rapture? We're recognizable, we're in a state of bliss, we're active, we're in the presence of Christ. Now I'm going to give you one that is a little more iffy. I'm going to give you something that I will readily admit is more my opinion than it is preachworthy. But I'm going to give it to you because I believe it's so. And if it's not, the Holy Spirit will show me and he'll show you. I think that there is a very real possibility that at least in some measure, God allows the, the inhabitants of heaven to know what's going on down here. Now, obviously, if we're in heaven, we can't see everything that's going, down on, on, going on down here. Otherwise, it wouldn't be heaven. But are there things that the Lord allows people in heaven to at least know about and maybe even observe? I think there's evidence that there is. Okay? I'm going to give you the small version, the short version. How about when somebody gets saved? Luke 15, verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. It doesn't say the angels are rejoicing. Frankly, they don't really understand salvation. Not like we do. There is joy in the presence of the angels. What, why? For what purpose? Over one sinner that repenteth. So let me tell you something. When, when oh, oh, we'll just, we'll just choose, you know, Johnny Boy, whoever Johnny is, not our Johnny, but whoever Johnny is. Johnny Boy, when Grandma had been praying for him to be saved, and Grandma goes to heaven, and Johnny Boy gets saved, I believe Grandma knows it. Mama knows it. Daddy knows it. Because that rejoicing in the presence of the angel certainly is the Father. But is it a stretch to believe that it's other saints that have a vested interest in that new brother and sister coming home? Sure. But I'm going to add to that another passage that a lot of people say is, is a weak one, but I, I, I just got to go with it. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I'm not going to be, you know, steadfast on this thing, but I believe there's, there's sufficient evidence in the Bible to suggest that it is a very good possibility that people in heaven, to some degree, know what's going on here and maybe even are allowed to see it.
I believe that. I believe that. So what happens until the rapture? Is there an intermediate state? Does death hurt? Number four, what happens at the rapture? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Man. I've read this so many times at gravesides. But it should not be reserved for funerals. It's something we should be meditating on constantly. For I'd not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are what? Asleep. They're dead. I'd not have you ignorant, brethren, to be... Try it again, Andy. I'd not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep... That you saw or not, even as others which have no hope. What's he saying there? It is absolutely appropriate for Christians to sorrow. Death is a sad thing. But aren't you glad we sorrow not as those that have no hope? <laughs> for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the key. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. This we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now why should this be something we meditate on frequently? Because look at the last verse. Wherefore... Comfort one another with these words. It shouldn't just be at gravesides that we think on this. Jesus could come back tonight. Jesus could come back right now, and the Antichrist inherits everything we leave behind. A baptistry that we're still working on. A parking lot that needs to be paved. Concrete that's about to be poured. The rebar's set up. Everything looks good. But it's not done yet. And you know what? He can have it all. Because you know what it's going to do ultimately? It's all going to burn up. It's all going to burn up. But we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So I guess by my understanding of Scripture, Antichrist inherits Otis too, my dog, my beagle. It'll be tough on him. All right. I'm leaving it all here. I'm leaving it all here. Now, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read both passages and let's put them together and talk about what happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse number 51. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I'll show you a mystery. What's a mystery? A mystery is a truth that was concealed earlier in the Bible, but as we moved into the New Testament church understanding, it's revealed. Okay, uh, the rapture has, has been, you can find the rapture all through scripture in typology and shadow and so forth, but now it's been revealed. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption, corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So let's take these two passages, let's put them together. What happens at the rapture? At the time of God's choosing, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and there have been all kinds of suggestions as to what that phrase means. The one that's most intriguing to me that I've heard is that the twinkling of an eye has the idea of the time it takes for light to hit your eye and register as sight. It's virtually immeasurable. Whatever it is, it's fast. It's fast. Why is that? Because remember, our Creator transcends time. Right. He's not bound by time. Okay. The moment, the twinkling of an eye, there's going to be a trump. The Bible calls it the last trump. There's going to be a trumpet that's going to, be sound, that's going to sound. Now, this is just my theorizing. I think that this event will be silent to the world, but I think it will be mighty loud to us. Silent to the world, mighty loud to us. And, and, and let me tell you, just because in the world's thinking that it happens in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, I think for us, we're going to have time to see what's happening because we're going to be changed and we're going to be able to perceive things the way that, that God does. And so to the world, it's instantaneous. To us, we get to see this unfold. So let's say that we've got a precious saint from our church family that's passed away. Let's say we're standing around the graveside. I think about this every time I do a graveside service. I think about what if it happened right now? Here's what would happen. The trump. And a mighty voice. Christ, come up hither. And as that is happening, in the eastern sky, there's an opening. And stepping out on the portals of the eastern sky is none other than Jesus himself. Amen. And that trump sounds and the mighty voice cries, come up hither. And in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ rise first. That means whether graves burst open or they just translate out of them, I don't know. Now, I know when this happened at Jesus' death, graves burst open. So maybe they will again, I don't know. But I know this. The dead in Christ rise first. Maybe the only time God's partial. You've been there long enough. You're going first. Maybe. I don't know. And God supernaturally takes their body and reconfigures it. Every, every molecule, every atom that has been cast to the four corners of the earth is reassessed and re remade and a person is translated into a glorified perfect eternal body and their soul and their spirit is reunited with this body whatever temporary thing they have up there is no longer needed they're reunited with this body the dead in Christ rise first and you know what they cry as they rise oh grave where's your victory you didn't keep me, did you? But then, 
just right after that, we which are alive and remain, we change too. And before we know it, we are caught up together with them in the clouds. For what purpose? To meet the Lord in the air. Oh, won't it be wonderful to see my loved ones going up with me? I think in that moment that will not be a first thing we register. No, our focus will be on the Lord. <laughs> and so shall we be forever with the Lord. We get to heaven. We'll talk about this in another message. We get to heaven and there's a big supper. In our glorified bodies that are just like Jesus' body, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. I take from that that if we'll be like him, then we'll appear in maturity as Jesus did. I think it's reasonable to conclude that we'll all be adult in appearance. I don't think that there will be babies in heaven. I think those babies will be adult in their appearance, okay? Perhaps even as specific as 33 or so. You know, I've got three children in heaven myself. Many of you have children there too. I'm not going to go and hold my babies. I'm going to go and hold my grown children. You know what's interesting to me? I think about them a lot. We lost them early enough we didn't name them because we didn't know what we would be naming, boys or girls. God gave them their names. And when I get there, I'll know their names. And they'll know mine. What's interesting is, now this is just my theory, when I embrace them for the first time, it won't be, hey, Dad, It'll be, hey, Andy, why do you say that? Oh, they'll know I'm their dad, but they'll say, Andy, you know why? Because when I've baptized people, you know what I say, even my daughter? Upon your public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you, not my daughter. I baptize you, my, my sister. <laughs> We're peers in that respect, and in heaven we all will be. So presumably we'll appear in adulthood as he does. And presumably we'll be able to do what Jesus did in his glorified body. So what can Jesus do in his glorified body? Well, hallelujah, John 21, he ate. I'll take it a step further. He ate meat. If you count fish as meat, some don't. I do. Will there be... Will there be steak in heaven? Now, this is getting into another message. Somebody, my grandmother, who's now in heaven and knows she's wrong. My grandmother, there won't be steak in heaven. A cow would have to die. I said, you're telling me God can't create a porterhouse? Sure he can. If I get there and there's not, I won't be disappointed, but still. There'll be steak and Coca-Cola. And it won't have to be Coke Zero either. Matthew 26, he told the disciples that he wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine again until he entered into the kingdom, which tells me he eventually will drink too. 
So in our glorified bodies, we can eat and we can drink. Yes. I'm trying to find somewhere in scriptures where he took a nap. Because then I got the trifecta, eat, drink, and sleep. I'm ready to go, you know. I'll tell you what else he did, John chapter 20. He could appear and disappear in thin air. If we're going to be like him, and he did that in his glorified body, is it reasonable to conclude that we can too? I hope so. Because heaven's a big place. Heaven's 1,500 miles square. Roughly, that's New York to Miami to Denver. That's a big, big city. So, so if, you know, if, if Brother Hensley, his, his mansion is up in a corner over here, and I'm in the opposite corner, that's a long walk. And I'm sorry, as much as you want to think we're going to have wings in heaven, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. He's now an angel in heaven. No, he's not. I don't want to be an angel. My inheritance in Jesus is better than what an angel gets. I don't want to be an angel. God knew he needed another angel. That pop theology drives me just batty. <laughs> so how are we going to get there? Brother Hensley, how am I going to come see you? That's how. I'll just appear. I'll literally pop in. So keep your mansion clean. I could be there at any moment. <laughs> and I'll tell you what else. We're recognizable in this glorified body. I get this question a lot, Pastor, will my loved ones know me? Yes, they will. And you'll know them too. And it goes even further than that, First Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall I know even as also I am known. And I've used this recently in a message and talked about it in, in Sunday school and so forth. Um, something that really, really encourages me is when I get to heaven, when I get to heaven, I'm going to know even as I'm also known. So I would look across and see Brother Hensley. I'd say, that's Brother Hensley. And Brother Hensley would look at me and say, that's Andy. But it, it's even better than that. Maybe me and Brother Hensley are standing here and we're talking, we're catching up. I look over and I say, forgive me, okay, because in heaven you'll be Bill. I say, Bill. I would call you that now, but Bill. That's Paul. Paul who? Paul. The Apostle Paul. Paul of Tarsus. That's him. You know what Paul will be saying? Peter, that's Bill Hensley. That's Andy Davis. We'll know even as we're known. How do I know that? You tell me how the disciples knew that was Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. There wasn't a guidebook that they were given when they got up there for the tour. They knew who they were. Well, maybe they had a picture. What picture? They knew them. That's why if you've got a baby up there, and even though they're grown up, you'll know them. They'll know you. Hey, by the way, Grandma's not going to look like Grandma either. All those pictures you saw of Grandma when she was young and spry and wrinkle-free and all that, that's who you're going to see. Now, yeah. heaven's going to be awesome. It's just going to be awesome. And we're not going to get into any of this until we've spent a good bit of time at his feet. When we get there, we're not going to want to go anywhere but Jesus. Keep the streets of gold, the mansions, and all the, the 12 jewels and the foundation, the gates of pearl and the crystal river. I just want to lay here at your feet. Because Christ is what makes heaven heaven. 
like the song says, Oh, what glory awaits me in heaven's bright city. When I get there, what sights I'll behold. A million scenes of rare beauty will demand that I see them. But Jesus will outshine them all. (laughs) So what do we do with this? And that gets us to our famous so what. Those are the scriptures you're supposed to turn to. So what? All right, Andy, this is a nice little lesson and everything, and we've got the questions answered. What do we do with this information? What is my play right here, right now? What do I take all of this and do with it? How do I process it? How do I employ it? If you're not still there, go to 1 Corinthians 15. I left out two verses. Paul closed out this portion of Scripture with a charge. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So what do I take with me tonight? Those last two verses. Verse 57. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice it doesn't say that he will give us the victory. It says he's given us the victory now. He giveth us the victory. Heaven is as good as ours right now. In fact, Ephesians teaches we're already there. We're seated together in the heavenlies. We're already there. Therefore, if, I, if you'd allow me a slight translation here, so what? <laughs> Therefore, here's the so what. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Stay faithful. Stay active. Stay encouraged. Because this is not where it ends. This, just like I mentioned this morning, this is but the dressing room for eternity. And when we get there, we'll say, It was worth it all when we saw Jesus. Life's trials did seem so small when we saw Christ. One glimpse of his dear face and all sorrows did erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. 